sound and we've got video so here we go um, it's uh, it's that time to break into the Word of God again with you I'm very excited as I am every Lord's Day to do this um, we are in Galatians of course that wonderful book that we just began a, a few weeks ago and we're now uh, in the text, <clears throat> we looked at verses 1 to 5, and we're going to look at verses 6 to 9 uh, in this hour. As you're turning or finding your way there, let me say that we do live in an age of redefinition, no question about it. Truth is relative. People define concepts and words to their own satisfaction, and they justify uh, their redefinitions to fit their own lifestyles. Immorality is a post in a post-Christian culture has naturally become virtuous, believe it or not. What used to be virtuous, virtuous centuries ago is now evil and wicked, offensive, bigoted, and backward. But against the darkness of this humanistic and immoral background shines the pure gospel. It's about how God completely changes an individual for the better and forever by creating a new life in him that outlasts clinical death and conforms him to the image of his dear son, Jesus Christ. It is a stroke of God's grace alone that he does this. No one can obtain this new life by his own doing. We would be right in saying that it really offers people everything they ever wanted and more, whether they realize it or not. It's humanity's only hope of being restored. You know, if you want to change society, you really need to change it one mind at a time. You change a person's uh, mind, you change a person's behavior. And God, through the gospel, then gives new minds or new hearts with a new desire to love God and love neighbor the way that they ought. So lead a person to Christ, and he becomes a child of light, light in this very dark world. Now something so wonderful as the gospel, so, so powerful and so transformative, so hopeful, is bound to attract counterfeits. I want you to think about that. We see this in the market world as well. Manufacturers ride the coattails of successful businesses of brand name items and create a knockoff. Uh, that is what some would call a generic brand. Knockoffs are inferior to the genuine article. They don't, they don't look as good. They don't wear as comfortably. They don't work as good or taste as good as in some cases, and they don't last as long. They don't last even though they promise to. They don't keep their promise in any of these areas, really. Not only do they fail to give the same experience, they, they can be harmful, especially when we're talking about medications. Now, we shouldn't be surprised, then, at counterfeit gospels, but we should recognize them. They sound the same, they promise the same results, but in the end, they are sure to disappoint. And, well, that's putting it mildly. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as you know, saves lives for eternity. Knockoffs, they keep people in their condemnation. They are not transformative. And there are many reasons why people promote 
a counterfeit gospel, some for personal gain, like many of the charlatans today that take advantage of people's weaknesses, some for power and prestige, since they can hold sway over the masses. Some are motivated really by fear of persecution. And some are just, well, self-deceived. As far as Satan is concerned, he just wants to keep as many people out of heaven as he can. Now, needless to say, spiritual counterfeits are enemies of the gospel. Hopefully, we all believe that. And the Apostle Paul never hesitated to expose them for what they were for the sake of the church. He was often righteously indignant over them. And we see this clearly demonstrated, perhaps nowhere more clearly demonstrated and as powerfully than in the book of Galatians. Manufacturers of a knockoff gospel infiltrated the Galatian churches and spread their counterfeit message, which attacked the true gospel of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and could only prove to be destructive to anyone who embraced it. Paul was not about to take that one lying down, so he writes a letter. Now, I have to say that if Paul were to have texted that letter today, uh, he would have used several of those yellow round face emojis uh, along the way to communicate his feelings and, and his mood, like the red face scowl and the bewilderment face with the eyes wide open. And, of course, the frowning face with tears. All of those would certainly have been among his most popular emojis. Now, they didn't exist back then, so instead he uses literary devices in order to achieve the same effect. He doesn't thank God for the Galatians. Rather, he rebukes them instead. And he uses some pretty extreme language, as we'll see. And his response in verses 6 to 9, provides us with a model of how to contend for the gospel. I would say if Timothy or Titus were with Paul when he wrote this, and we have no idea of knowing that, I can just imagine him using this opportunity to teach them how to contend for the gospel. He would have said to them, and this I think is the main idea of our whole passage, brothers, we must confront believers the moment they seem to drift from orthodoxy by exposing the counterfeit teachings of the faith that they might be entertaining and that come from counterfeit preachers who will certainly face God's judgment. So let me see, let's see how this, is, how this develops through the, the passage. First of all, or number one, we, we need to confront believers the moment they seem to drift from orthodoxy. That's in the first part of verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ. I mentioned in our introduction that Paul followed somewhat loosely the customary structure and formula of first century Greek letters. Maybe you remember that. So, immediately after Paul's greeting in verses 1 to 5, he should have put in, at that point, a proper thanksgiving, thanking God for the Galatians. That was the usual order. 
Paul follows that order in every one of his letters, thanking God in some way for his recipients, but not this one. This is the only letter where he doesn't do that. That's surprising. What's more surprising is that in its place, he puts an unmistakable word of, abu of rebuke. He says, I am astonished at you. Now, this particular Greek verb uh, behind this translation was a, was a technical term by this time and used in Greek correspondence to signal rebuke. How about that? In his Galatians commentary, Richard Longnecker points this out and demonstrate that Paul's structure in, sec in this section, verses 6 to 9, is, it follows the structure of, of Greek rebuke letters of the day, which began with, I am astonished, and then identifies the cause for the rebuke, and then ends with a reminder of a previous instruction. So Lonnecker points out the parallels in Galatians. He says, quote, It begins with a conventional expression of rebuke, I am astonished. It states then the cause for this rebuke. You are deserting the one who called you by his grace, of, by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. And then it reminds us of previous instruction in verse 9. As we have already said, so now I say again. It's very interesting. So Paul starts right, right, right away communicating his strong disappointment in the Galatians and that he was really now rebuking them. He could find no good reason why he might thank God for them at this very moment, and he inserts a well-known rebuke formula instead. They would, have, they would have, uh, have known this. They wouldn't have missed it, for sure. Now, what's more, Paul expresses his strong feelings of dismay by using this rebuke term, I am astonished. Its basic meaning is surprise. Well, I'm surprised, that kind of thing, but, but it has an element of incredulity or skepticism in the Galatians. So the idea is, I don't believe what I'm hearing about you. This cannot possibly be happening to you. Tell me the reports that I'm receiving about you aren't true. Say it isn't so. And that's the idea that this word astonish carries in this particular context. It is a word, in a word, he was flabbergasted. The late renowned Pauline scholar F.F. F. Bruce says, quote, the most probable account of the omission of any thanksgiving here is that Paul was impelled by a sense of overmastering urgency to come straight to the point, end quote. And he does. What was it that he found so unbelievable that caused him to be so agitated, even indignant. Well, the Galatians made what we might describe as an astounding two-part move that stunned Paul. The first of which is their turning away from God. That's in verse 6. Paul said, you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ. Now, the turning Paul speaks of here indicates several things. I want to rehearse that with you. It's a very pregnant term in this context. In the first place, they were turning from God. Now, this is the first of a two-part turn, remember. They were turning from God. Paul says, from the one who had called them by the grace of Christ. 
God the Father had called them to faith. And the calling is unquestionably what the Reformed faith calls the effectual call, that inward working of the Holy Spirit that affects new life in an unbeliever so that he will find God's love and, and salvation irresistible and embrace it in faith and repentance. Calling has this primary meaning, in fact, all throughout the epistles. 1 Peter 2.9, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the calling you have received. 2 Timothy 6.12, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And we may safely assume that Paul believed that the Galatians were genuine believers who had begun to divert their eyes away from God and his grace in Christ, a gospel of grace. In the second place, they were turning from orthodoxy. In a word, they were apostatizing. Now, the verb turning away is in the present tense, suggesting that the Galatians hadn't actually apostatized, but were beginning to drift. They were walking the straight and narrow, and they turned and looked the other way. They started to drift. In the third place, their turning was clearly their fault. We'll see shortly in verse 7 that Paul says some people were throwing them into confusion, but Paul doesn't blame those people for the Galatians drifting. He blames them. How do we know this? Well, the Greek verb translated turning away from is what grammarians call, or is in what grammarians call, I should say, a reflexive form. That means that they were turning themselves away. Paul doesn't say that someone turned them away. If he meant that, he would have used the passive form of the verb. So they were responsible for this sudden change in direction. And the rest of the letter supports that. Paul calls them foolish in chapter 3, verse 3, and says, how can you turn back again, chapter 4, verse 9. And in chapter 5, verse 4, he explains that they were trying to be justified by the law and had fallen from grace. It's all, this is all language that indicts them. Now, they allowed themselves to be dissuaded from the truth, pure and simple. They listened to the wrong people. But please understand, they had no reason to drift, none at all. We'll see shortly in verse 9 that Paul had already forewarned them about false teachers spreading a false gospel when he was with them the last time. And in addition to that, he had, they had already accepted Paul's gospel. So they had no reason to drift at all. As William Hendrickson declares in his commentary in Galatians, quote, they should have guarded the deposit that had been entrusted to them, end quote. In the fourth place, their turning happened quickly. It happened quickly. Whether Paul means since the time of their conversion or the time that they met the Judaizers is not clear. Calvin thought Paul meant the time immediately, immediately after his departure from Galatia. The idea is, as he says, quote, no sooner had Paul left them 
that the Galatians were led away from the truth, end quote. I'm not convinced that Paul is actually referring so much to a time period between two events as he is to how quickly they were convinced upon hearing the error. In other words, it didn't take long for the Galatians to be convinced of error once they entertained it, and that's the idea. Beloved, take note of this. I think it's true that that departures from sound orthodox truth happen much quicker than you think. If you entertain it, it becomes a possibility. Now think of Eve. She was so tenacious about obeying God's instruction that she even elaborated on his prohibition to the serpent just before she sinned. She said, God said you must not eat of it, speaking of the fruit, or touch it, speaking of the tree, or you will die. God never said anything about touching the tree, which I think, if anything, reveals the seriousness with which she took God's prohibition. But in a matter of seconds, in seconds, the Hebrew text says, she saw, she took, she ate, and she gave to her husband to eat. Hebrew narrative often emphasizes the rapid movement of an event by listing the verbs in that passage in rapid succession without much description in between, as Moses does here. So no matter how serious she was about obeying God's prohibition, the moment she entertained the fruit, she saw it was good. It appealed to her senses. She gave in. And when she did, it was quick. It happened very quick. Eve is not credited with the fall. We know that man is. She was deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. But she is accountable, nevertheless, for her sin. And Adam is doubly accountable for shifting the object of his affection and his faith away from God to the prospects of becoming one's own God, maybe even faster than Eve did. Any indication that we may get that a believer is starting to drift, we must act immediately to stop the drift. Nip it in the bud as quickly as possible. Number two, expose counterfeit teachings of the faith that they are entertaining. The verb to turn away also carries with it, in this context, the idea of transferring allegiances from one thing to another. That means that if they were turning away from God by rejecting his gospel of grace, well, then they were turning to something else. What was it that they were turning to? Well, Paul answers in the second part of verse 6, are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another, he says. Now, this is the second part of that astounding two-part move by the Galatians that stunned Paul. They were turning to a false gospel. Now, it's important that we understand that because God created human beings as worshipers, everyone worships something. There's never a question about that. So, in the case of conversion, a believer turns to God from dumb idols. That's how it works. That would be in accordance with God delivering us from darkness into his marvelous light. What that means is that there is never, then, any neutral ground. 
forever. As much as some would like to think that while they don't worship Jesus, they don't worship anything at the moment, and they are remaining neutral while they weigh out their options. Maybe you heard that in some kind of witnessing context. But they're deceiving themselves. They always worship something. They must, because that's how God made us. Now, by the same token, professing believers who turn from God in a weak moment to tempt in temptation back to something else as the object of their affections, well, whether, whether it's a false impression of a God or a false belief system, it could be anything, they are transferring allegiance. They're transferring affections. At that very moment, they love whatever it is they're fixed on more than they want to please Christ. Now, another thing uh, uh, about the twofold process of turning of allegiances from one thing to another is that it is a process. So there is no interval of time separating them. If there's no neutral ground, there's also no time that separates these two-part moves. If you are not worshiping Christ, then you're worshiping something else, and vice versa. It has to be that way. Now, in the Galatians case, they were turning to a counterfeit gospel, but a great deal was at stake. There are actually a couple of interesting parallels here that help to clarify this for us and show us just how much their their diver, diversion of, uh, of their allegiance was. How much was at stake? The first par parallel I want to show you is between him who called you by the grace of Christ in the first part of verse 6 and another gospel in the second part of verse 6. Now, if Paul says another gospel, then we would have expected him to say something like the true gospel back in the first part of verse 6. Do you see what I mean? He should have said, you turn so quickly away from the true gospel to another gospel. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, you are turning from him who has called you by his grace in Christ to another gospel. And what, it, and what he gives here, really, is the definition of the true gospel. And, it's, and he emphasizes certain elements of that gospel that were being attacked in Galatia, God's grace being one of them. God's grace on which salvation rests and Christ's redeeming work through which God's grace came. As we'll see later on, their gospel was not of grace through faith, but rather faith plus works of the law. Now, that's the first parable. Here's another par uh, parallel, rather. Here's another parallel. It's between another gospel in verse 6 and no gospel at all in verse 7. Paul, Paul's reference to a different gospel is from the vantage point of the Galatians, as if the Galatians were turning to another gospel that it was just as legitimate. But Paul quickly dispels that notion in the next phrase when he says, there is no other gospel. Theirs was illegitimate, and that's the point of that parable. Uh, parallel, excuse me. Yeah, parallel, parables on the mind. It's worthy pausing, I think, very briefly to rehearse just how deceiving a counterfeit gospel is. Just before I introduce the third parallel. Those false teachers who infiltrated Galatia may very well have believed in Jesus as, long, as the long-awaited Messiah 
and that he even rose from the dead. Don't forget the counterfeit message, any counterfeit message, is built on truth. And the more truth it's dressed up in, the more dangerous it is. It will, of course, always have that one small percentage of error which will contradict the majority of the truth that it wears. So the Galatian church, to the Galatian church, everything about this false gospel may have actually sounded very familiar to them. And the small percentage of error added to it, which was to, to rely on the works of the law, um, turned it into a, a gospel of works. They, they, didn't, they didn't seem to catch. It, it wasn't really out of place for them. And maybe that's because they were too impressed with how winsome these false teachers were or with their credentials, having come from James and the Jerusalem church, and maybe even with the blessing of the apostles themselves. Who knows? Nevertheless, the error was enough to destroy the grace of God in the gospel and them as well. I like the way that Hendrickson illustrates how the minutest percentage of error destroys the gospel of grace. He says, quote, A beverage may be very healthful and refreshing, but when a drop of poison is added to it, it becomes deadly. By adding the doctrine of works to the, great, to the gospel of grace, the false teachers contaminated the true gospel and destroyed grace. Now this brings us to the last parallel then in the text, it's not really apparent or as apparent as the other two because it, it's really an implication of reflecting, um, of re rejecting rather the true gospel for the false one. When one rejects the pure gospel of grace for a counterfeit one, he automatically rejects the author of that gospel, God himself. And he also embraces, then, a false gospel. Do you see how that works? Those who held to a false gospel, they may say that they know God and Jesus Christ, but you can be sure that it's not the same God and the same Christ as the Bible. It cannot be if the gospel is different. We need to expose, then, counterfeit teachings of the faith when we see believers entertaining it. Leon Morris argues that Paul would not let the Galatians get away with believing that they were now that to that what they were turning to now was simply another version of the same gospel of Christ, and that and that uh, there there are many other versions that are just as legitimate. Absolutely not. They weren't just passing harmlessly from one version of the gospel. To, to another, he says, but rather to a true gospel or from a true gospel to a false one. Number three, we need to expose the source of the counterfeit to them for what it really is. We need to show them what the counterfeit really is, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is the first mention of a third party in the entire epistle. Paul says, some who are troubling the Galatians. The Greek, translate, the Greek uh, word translated troubling here in your English means to stir up, to throw into confusion. Jesus used the same word when he 
talked to his disciples and he said, do not be troubled. You might remember they learned that he was going to a place where they could not follow. They were confused. They were depressed. They were unsettled. Let not your hearts be troubled, he said. In the Galatian context, it certainly means that these agitators were were causing the Galatians maybe even some doubt. Doubt about the gospel that they had embraced from Paul. The culprits here, as we'll soon discover, are Judaizers. Those are Jew, that's a Jewish sect that actually professed to be Christian, but Paul will describe them more precisely as false brethren in chapter 2. We'll get into the ways and means of these false brethren at that time, but for now, I might point out that in Acts chapter 15, verse 24, Luke uses the same word trouble, um, uses the same word trouble as well, or disturb, to speak of the same crowd, the same agitators, the Judaizers, who were making rounds to different churches before Paul even wrote Galatia, uh, Galatians. It says, We have heard that some, without our authorization, went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. We see here that to trouble someone means then to unsettle him, as the parallel word there would suggest. So the agitators in Galatia were unsettled. Um, the, the agitators were unsettling the Galatians, the Galatian believers, with their words, confusing them with what Paul calls a distorted gospel. Um, the adjective distort has the idea of turning something into its opposite. Basically, that's what they did. They took the true gospel and they turned it into a false one. A gospel of grace into a gospel of works. And, by the way, the idea that this word carries of turning something into its opposite state is always for the worse, not for the better. So it's a corruption. In fact, Calvin goes so far as to call it a perversion, which is even worse. The Galatians started to embrace a perversion of the genuine article. And so it was necessary that Paul expose their new mentors as false brethren who were persuading them to abandon the gospel of grace for a distortion. We come finally to the last major truth here, number four. Assure believers that God condemns those who counterfeit the gospel and lead people astray. It's in verses 8 and 9. Paul said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, a curse be upon him. This is the last part of a short rebuke section. And I want you to notice the crescendo effect. Paul actually ends with the strongest possible language. It's bold. It's harsh. But he wants to assure the Galatians that the one who should distort the gospel and preach it as if it were the genuine article is the one that is reserved for God's judicial wrath that is to come at the end of time. Make no mistake. And this is how serious the matter is. God's gospel is not to be tampered with. Prohibition neither to add nor take away from God's word is repeated in both Testaments. 
you might remember. Anyone who does either will incur the wrath of God. Now notice that Paul put himself and his missionary companions at the head of this list, followed by an angelic messenger. And you ought to know that whenever a proper noun is placed first in a Greek sentence, the writer is emphasizing it. So the idea here is even if we or an angel from heaven. Angels in this context, of course, are good angels, and they were believed to be the most reliable and the most authoritative. If they were going to come right from the throne room of God to deliver a message, well, they're going to deliver it accurately and with the authority of God Almighty. This is the view throughout both Testaments and why Paul includes an angelic messenger. You cannot get any higher or more authoritative than that. At this point, uh, we notice that the idea that Paul wants to convey, convey is that no matter who the being is, whether an apostle or an angel, neither one has the authority to change God's message. Both are just messengers, and the message trumps the messenger. What makes the gospel true is not that Paul preached it, but that Christ gave it to Paul to preach. Do you see the difference? So Paul includes himself here for that very reason. He too needs to submit to the gospel that Jesus had delivered to him on the road to Damascus. And if he should get the bright idea to double back and go through all the church plants in Galatia and preach a different gospel than the one he had preached to them initially, then he'd be liable for the same condemnation. Galatian churches needed to pay attention to the gospel that he delivered to them at the first. Anyone without exception who proclaims a false gospel as, as if it were the true one, then is to be accursed. Calvin adds that Paul includes himself in the possible anathema because he also wanted to prevent his opponents from charging him with inventing it. Paul didn't invent the gospel. He received it from Jesus firsthand. Now, Paul, never uh, um, Paul would never distort the gospel, obviously, which is why he introduces this section as a hypothetical. Right? Even if we are an angel from heaven, which is a, uh, an improbable thing that would never happen, but he uses exaggerated language to stress the point that anything contrary to what he has already preached to them is absolutely counterfeit, and those preaching would incur God's judgment. He expressed this very same concern, in fact, for the purity of the gospel in other of his letters, Romans 16, verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Beloved, let me say that we have the truth in written form. The gospel that Paul proclaimed. So, you know the genuine article, and, when some, and you know when someone brings a distortion. You don't need anybody to tell you. There, uh, th this, I think, was John's point, the Apostle John, in 1 John 2.27, when he said that we don't need anyone to teach us. He wasn't saying that we don't need teachers that would 
be contrary to the New Testament teaching that God gives teachers to the church. Rather, he was talking about the gospel. They don't need anybody to tell them or teach them about the gospel. It's plain. They know the gospel. And no matter how impressive someone's credentials are, if what they teach doesn't square with what they have heard and what we know to be true from Scripture, we need to expose them. Now, when we come to verse 9, situation's a bit different. Paul is not speaking hypothetically now, but rather he's speaking actually. He says, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, a curse be on him. The construction of this conditional clause actually anticipates the preaching of a false gospel, as was already the case in the Galatian church. In fact, some commentators go so far as to suppose that the false teachers themselves were, were still active among the Galatians when Paul wrote this letter. Can you imagine? If they were actually there for the reading of this letter, well, that would truly be a gracious stroke of divine providence. We have no way of knowing, of course. Short phrase at the beginning of verse 9, and we have said before, I now say again, it's not just Paul's reminder to them that he had warned them before of false teachers on the prowl. It is also one of those phrases that I talked about before that helped to express his emotion. He was frustrated. This has the force, really, of, I told you that this could have happened, didn't I? That's the idea. Well, this section and the rest of this letter, in fact, lays, lays out for us at least two Christian responsibilities, two responsibilities that are ours and that we need to heed. The first one, the first one that I want to point out is the one I pointed out at the beginning of our time, to confront believers the moment they seem to drift from orthodoxy by exposing any counterfeit teaching that they may be entertaining and also the counterfeit teachers responsible for it who will surely face God's judgment. That is our responsibility. Paul imitated Christ who warned his disciples of coming persecution and false teachers. He, he speaks, in fact, in the entire chapter of John 16. He speaks of warnings he warns them. He, he opens and he closes the entire chapter with a near identical warning. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. Paul also encouraged Titus to do the same thing in his church in Crete. Titus 1, verses 10 and 11, For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. Jude changes his plans and calls the entire church to be on guard and to contend for the faith, right? Now, I'm not an apostle, nor am I a pastor you might be thinking, well, nice try. But Paul puts this responsibility square on the shoulders 
of every member of the local church. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, We exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. So we're all in this together, beloved. This is for all of us. This is our responsibility. This God-given responsibility, you ought to know, is absent in American Christianity because people find it offensive and it drives people away from the church. Why would I ever do this if it doesn't bring them in and keep them there? We need to be more concerned, however, about preserving the purity of the gospel and people's souls rather than numbers. The late James Boyce said that if churches are disturbed by Paul's strong condemnation of false teachers, well, that, quote, shows how little the gospel of, gra of God's grace is understood and appreciated, and how little many Christians are concerned for the advance of biblical truth. If men are taught a false gospel, they are being led from the one thing that can save them and are being turned to destruction. End quote. Jesus was much stronger than that in Matthew 18.6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would have been better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That's our Lord. Remember, a denunciation of error is an act of devotion to the truth and an act of love to rescue people from it. The second responsibility that the Holy Spirit lays upon us is to keep ourselves from drifting as well. Keep ourselves from drifting. John MacArthur, who's been around a long time, testifies, quote, it's possible even for long-time believers to lose a firm grip on those truths and allow themselves to be weakened and perverted by ideas that purportedly improve on the pure and plain teachings of Scripture. End quote. I can vouch for this. I've known a few prominent church leaders who've lost their way, who have even fallen away. And it's always astounding to me when it happens. You might be thinking, born-again Christians cannot fall away. No, they cannot. But we don't know every heart among us, do we? Some don't even know their own heart. And backsliders exist in the church, whether in plain sight for all to see or in their hearts. And we don't know if a backslider is a Christian in need or needs to be a Christian. My point is that all of us need to know that part of God's divine means of keeping us saved and is the perseverance of the saints. He keeps us saved. He is keeping us saved and that will become evident in our lives in the way that we are responsible to make use of the ordinary means of grace in the good fight. If, God is, if we are alive and God is working in us, we will avail ourselves of the ordinary means of grace. Is your prayer life vibrant? Is your Bible study consistent? Do you regularly fellowship with the saints? 
Are you characterized by worship? Do you protect Sabbath Sunday? Do you regularly practice the ordinances? Sit under sound preaching of the word. Do you take God's admonition seriously? In other words, the fact that someone perseveres confirms God's sovereign and redemptive work in him. And he will endeavor to guard that which has been entrusted to his care. William Hendrickson puts it this way, quote, Divine sovereignty does not abrogate human responsibility, and that God accordingly carries out his eternal purpose by so operating through his spirit in the hearts of backsliders that they give heed to the earnest appeals that are made to them. In the chain of means whereby this calling is made effectual, and this grace irresistible, earnest warnings and obedience to these warnings are important links. No one can afford to take his ultimate salvation for granted. Everyone must strive to enter in. End quote. He's right. More than this is the fact that Leon Morris makes in his commentary, quote, only the person who has a firm grasp of the truth, can discern what is erroneous. End quote. Beloved, let's be found contending for the gospel now and always, but especially now in our anti-Christian climate and in this season of apostasy and compromise in the church in America. And may we be found contending even to our last breath, or at the coming of our Lord.